Lord, because of our uh, transgression against you, our rebellion against your law, our sin against you, none of us deserves anything good from you. But because you are rich in mercy, you have come and you have showered kindnesses upon us. And we are thankful this morning for the kindnesses that you have shown us who don't deserve those kindnesses. We thank you especially for the kindness of the cross and the resurrection of your son. And Lord, may the cross and resurrection, I pray, never become routine in our Christian life or or sort of dull, um, colorless. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us even this morning as we look again into this sermon that Peter preached at Pentecost, which is really the first Christian sermon. As he talks about the cross and resurrection in the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray today that we would be enlivened afresh to these great realities and that we would see the benefits that you have given us because of what Jesus has done. And so I pray you'd be with us now, Lord, minister to us by your spirit, and may we leave this place later today um, encouraged, greatly encouraged by your word, greatly encouraged, Lord, by the baptisms that we are uh, soon to witness. Uh, Be with us, Lord, in a rich way. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the year 1960, some of us were, I I wasn't alive, but some of you (laughs) were alive in 1960. Um, In that year, to have a TV in your home was a relatively recent possibility. And it was in that year, that same year, 1960, that the Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan commented on how this new advent of TVs in home living rooms was was having the effect of turning the world into a global village where everyone had now become aware of world events at the same time because they were all viewing those events, those same events unfolding on their television screens. And that had never happened until this particular moment, the the infancy of television. I want you to listen to what McLuhan said in 1960. He said that this new electronic medium called the television was making the world a village or tribe where everything happens to everyone at the same time. Everyone knows about it and therefore participates in it. Everything that is happening Uh, participates in everything that is happening the minute it happens. One more time, television was making the world a village or tribe where everything happens to everyone at the same time. Everyone knows about it and therefore participates in everything that is happening the minute it happens. Again, friends, it's important to see McLuhan made that statement, wrote that statement in 1960 before the advent of the internet in every home, long before uh, the smartphone. 
Long before the advent of cloud storage and Instagram and Twitter and Reddit and TikTok. Well, if we read McLuhan's now 61-year-old statement today, if we read it in 2021, it seems to be an amazingly prescient statement. We might even say that in 1960, McLuhan was saying way more than he knew he was saying. It's almost as if his statement is describing the advent of the internet better than it describes what he was actually referring to, which was TV. He had no concept in 1960 of the internet. Well, I raise this as an example of a person writing more than they know they are writing at the time. In the next part of Peter's sermon, in Acts chapter 2, Peter raises an example of someone in the distant past to him, in the distant past, who was writing far more than he knew he was writing. Now, just to refresh our memories, in his sermon, Peter has just talked about the cross of Jesus Christ in verse 23, and in verse 24, he's talked already about Christ's resurrection. Now, in verse 25, Peter continues on the subject of the resurrection, and what Peter does now is he brings up an Old Testament passage, Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And he brings up that passage in connection with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's go to verse 25. We'll walk through this slowly. Peter says now in his sermon, For David says, David, Old Testament character, For David says concerning him. Concerning who? Concerning Jesus Christ. We have to notice this, friends. The Apostle Peter has no hesitation saying that the Old Testament King David, who lived centuries before Jesus was ever born, David spoke of Jesus. David says concerning him, concerning Jesus. And then Peter quotes what David had written in Psalm 16, verse 8. David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Isn't that a tremendously assuring verse? Now, to see the Lord always before you means that you are constantly, always aware and conscious of the presence of the Lord. To see the Lord always before you means that you are ever mindful of the Lord. It means that the eyes of your heart are fixed on the Lord, and you know that the Lord's eyes are fixed on you. Now, Peter, he doesn't quote the first seven verses of Psalm 16. He starts here in his sermon by quoting verse 8 of the psalm. But if we read the first seven verses of Psalm 16, 
we will see that what we have there is David describing his loyalty to the Lord and his dependence on the Lord and his commitment to the Lord. And then comes verse 8 of the psalm, I saw the Lord always before me. So the psalm, Psalm 16, is about, really we could say it's about being utterly committed to the Lord combined with the blessed reality of the Lord's unrelenting presence. And in verse 8 of that psalm that Peter quotes here, there is this element, if we, if we notice, there's this element of God's protection. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my, at my right hand. Now in battle, that's the, that's the hand that normally you fought with, right? He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. The unrelenting presence of God means that God is protecting The unrelenting presence of God gave David the strong confidence of God's protection. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And again, friends, we need to remind ourselves as we go back to the beginning of the verse, let's not miss what Peter said at the beginning of the verse here. He said that David, as he wrote Psalm 16, was talking about who? Jesus. It's Jesus, ultimately, who saw the Lord always before him. It's Jesus who was utterly, totally committed to the Father with the Father's unrelenting presence upon him and with him. It is Jesus who ultimately, in an ultimate sense, had the protection of his Father so that even as Jesus died on the cross in that moment, he could say with sheer confidence as he's hanging on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus knew had full assurance that in the millisecond of his death, his spirit would indeed be in the tender hands of his Father. Psalm 16 ultimately is about Jesus. And Peter continues in verse 26 now, quoting Psalm 16.9, the next verse in the psalm, Therefore, because of the unrelenting presence, protection of God, therefore, What's the effect on a person? My heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Yes, because of God's unrelenting presence and protection, there's this upswell of praise, right? The heart being glad, the tongue rejoicing, the flesh dwelling in hope because of the security, the presence of Almighty God. And then verse 27, where Peter goes to the next verse, quotes Psalm 16.10 now. He's going through Psalm 16, or at least this portion of it. For you, Lord, listen to what he says, will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, again, David wrote those words centuries and centuries before Peter quoted them in this sermon. 
David wrote those words in Psalm 16 centuries and centuries before Jesus had ever been born. David, in his context, was doing what? Was expressing confidence there that God's protection would even extend beyond death. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, this word Hades is not a reference to hell. Rather, it's a reference to the land of the dead. The land of the dead. In the original psalm, Psalm 16, the word here, the Hebrew word, is Sheol. And Sheol is the Old Testament term for land of the dead. David was confident that God would not abandon him listen, would not abandon him to the land of the dead. And very remarkably, David was confident that God would not let his holy one, his anointed king, see corruption. And in the context here, corruption is the bodily corruption, the bodily decay that happens to each and every one of us when we are buried in the grave. How was it that David, writing centuries before any New Testament writing had ever been written, David, writing centuries before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. David, writing centuries before any sort of clear, detailed theology of resurrection had ever been worked out, how was it that David could be confident in his ancient context that God's chosen king would not see corruption, the decay of the grave? How was this? Well, hang on to that question as we go forward. In verse 28, now Peter quotes the last verse of the psalm, Psalm 16, verse 11. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. David expressed his confidence in the Lord that even in death, he would somehow, even in death, somehow he would be filled with the glad presence of God. Now, friends, remember our little story off the top about Marshall McLuhan writing in 1960 about the advent of the TV, but actually he was writing in an almost prescient way <laughs> about the advent of the internet. McLuhan had written more than he could have known in that moment in 1960. Really, he was describing the, the, the effect of the internet on our world, um, even though he'd never heard of the internet. Well, when David wrote Psalm 16, we need to understand he in that moment, as he's writing Psalm 16, wherever he, it was that he wrote it, he was writing more than he could have known. David was writing about Jesus Christ, who would descend from him hundreds of years after David's life. 
Watch what happens in Peter's sermon now as we proceed into verse 29. After Peter, he's just quoted those four verses from Psalm 16. He says to his audience as he's preaching, Brothers, sisters, (laughs) brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, Peter says here, the David who wrote Psalm 16, the David who in verse 10 of that psalm expressed his unwavering personal confidence that God would not allow his body to see corruption, that same David, friends, has been dead and buried for hundreds of years. We have his tomb with us to this very day. Yes, In fact, David's tomb is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture in Nehemiah 3, verse 16. The point that Peter's making here is that David's body, listen, David's body did end up very dead, very decayed in the grave. David did, after all, see corruption. He did. And so the upshot is, That as David wrote Psalm 1610 about the Holy One not dwelling in the land of the dead and not decaying physically in the grave, as David wrote that, he could not have been talking about himself. Because in David's case, he died and he stayed dead and his body has decayed in the tomb and this was a well-known landmark there in first century Israel. David's psalm could not have been autobiographical. It could not have been about David. And so we go to verse 30 and listen to what Peter says. Being therefore a what? A prophet. Peter calls David a prophet here. And of course, this description of David being a prophet would certainly fit with what David had said about himself in his very last public speech, which we have recorded for us in 2 Samuel 23. David had said in that speech, he'd said of himself, this is 2 Samuel 23 verse 2, David said of himself, the Lord speaks by me, his word is on my tongue. And in the verse before that, 2 Samuel 23, 1, there's mention of David speaking an oracle, which is exactly what prophets do. Prophets speak oracles. So yes, David, along with being the great king of Israel, we know him as the great king of Israel, he was also a prophet. Peter says, being therefore a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Yes, in that great covenant-making ceremony, that moment between God and David that we have recorded in a very important chapter of Scripture, 2 Samuel 7, there God promised David, swore an oath to David, that David's kingdom would continue after David 
had died, David's offspring, David's descendants, would successively mount the throne of Israel. And David knew all about that promise to him from God. And so Peter says here that David, knowing that promise of a future descendant, David foresaw, listen to the language, David foresaw and spoke about what? The resurrection of Christ. Now catch that. Peter is saying here that in in Psalm 16, Peter's just finished quoting it, David was speaking prophetically in that psalm by the Holy Spirit, speaking of the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the holy one who was to come. David in Psalm 16 had been prophesying concerning the Davidic king who would descend from him centuries and centuries later. It was that descendant of David that David had been speaking about. It was that descendant who would not be abandoned to Hades, nor would his flesh see corruption. The Christ, the Messiah. And who precisely was that descendant? Well, Peter goes on in verse 32 to make it crystal clear. This Jesus, God raised up. You know this guy, Joseph's son, came from backwoods Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This Jesus... God raised up, and of that, says Peter, we are all witnesses. It's Jesus who is the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth who is the Messiah. This is the one that David had been prophesying. Psalm 16 is all about Jesus. It's Jesus who saw the Lord always before him. Doesn't that fit Jesus? Saw the Lord always before him. It's Jesus, not David, who was relentless and perfect in his loyalty and his commitment to the Father. Wasn't David, all we have to point to is Bathsheba and the murder of of Uriah and David sending Uriah's death warrant in Uriah's hand to Joab. David was not totally sold out for the Lord all the time. Jesus was. Jesus was very dead. He died on the cross. He was deceased because he had been nailed to the cross, tortured, losing blood. He died. But Jesus in his death was not abandoned. He was not forsaken to the land of the dead. The body of Jesus did not see corruption like the body of David had because in Jesus' case, what happened three days after the death, God raised him to life. Friends, the only one who fits the description of Psalm 1610 is Jesus. It's not David or anybody else. It's the risen Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was what? It was the vindication 
of the perfect, relentless, Psalm 16 obedience of Jesus to the Father in all things. And so what has Peter done so far in his sermon? He's done a number of things, but we should note in particular that Peter, as he's talking in this context to a Jewish audience, he has twice used their Jewish scriptures, their Hebrew Bible the Old Testament, and he's done that to show the Spirit and to show Christ. Peter has used Joel chapter 2 to explain the events at Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out, and now Peter has employed Psalm 16 to say that the resurrection of Jesus had been prophesied by David. This was planned all along in God's magnificent, almighty plan. Notice also, friends, along with taking the audience to their scriptures, Peter also says in verse 32, we are all witnesses of God raising Jesus from the dead. So it's not just that the Old Testament scriptures prophesied the resurrection. It is that. But it's also that the resurrection actually happened and we witnessed it, Peter says. We witnessed the risen Jesus. We, we witnessed him walking bodily around here in Israel. We witnessed with our own eyes this fulfillment of Psalm 16. Jesus had been dead and it turned out that he's alive. We witnessed this with our own eyes. earth-shattering events had been happening in and around Jerusalem. Paradigm-shifting things had been happening. The resurrection was not explainable using ordinary scientific categories. Something extraordinary and absolutely unprecedented happened here. Jesus of Nazareth has risen from the dead. He is risen, my friends, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Amen? Just south of Louisville, Kentucky, lies the United States Bullion Depository, also known as Fort Knox. Inside the depository are over 4,500 metric tons of gold. No visitors are ever allowed to enter the depository, ever, and the security around the place is very formidable. Outside the depository itself is a perimeter fence, razor wire, and minefields. The walls of the depository itself are lined with granite, and the vault where the gold is is subterranean, it's underground, 
and it's surrounded by steel plates and concrete encased cylinders. The door, to get into the vault, the door is nearly two feet thick and it is both drill resistant and torch resistant. The door weighs some 18 metric tons and it can only be opened when several staff members, in one account I read 10 staff members, enter their own individual combinations. And then it's on, I think it's a, it's a 100 or 105 hour timer. So you, even after you enter the combinations, it won't open automatically. You gotta wait. <laughs> so 10 people have to enter their own individual combinations that only they know and nobody else knows what combination you have. And although uh, this is rumored, the US government will neither confirm nor deny it, but it's rumored that the place is further guarded by laser-triggered uh, laser machine guns. And so the basic idea is that nobody is going to get through the door to the vault. The door leading to the gold is essentially impenetrable. Now I want you to take that door at Fort Knox and multiply its security by 10 million. And what you have is the door that was shut in the moment when Adam fell into sin in the Garden of Eden. When Adam fell into sin in the Garden, an absolutely impenetrable door was set up and this door was shut, it was locked, it was secured. It's a door that makes the door of Fort Knox look like child's play and it's a door that none of us has ever been able to overcome. The door is called death and each of us must arrive at it. Desperately, we need somebody who can unlock that door called death. Somebody who can fight through death's formidable defenses and get us through to the gold. Is there anyone Anyone at all who can force open the impenetrable door. Jesus is risen. Jesus has done the impossible. Jesus has fought through the door of death. He has busted through. He's taken away its power. He's taken away the power of death. As Derek Tidball puts it, coming back to our, uh, our image, our metaphor, Derek Tidball says, Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. Do you believe it? The last word no longer belongs to death no longer belongs to dying. The last word belongs to Jesus Christ. And he says directly to you today, 
I want you to take these words of Jesus personally. The risen Jesus is here with us right now. He says these words to you, my friend. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Are you a believer? You're not going to die. Oh, you may die physically and be buried, but you're not going to die. You're going to go immediately to be with Jesus Christ. As I said at a funeral not long ago, the believer in Jesus does not ever pass away. Should get rid of that language for believers. The believer of Jesus Christ never passes away. Rather, when the believer exhales for the very last time, he or she then passes through, passes through to eternal life with Jesus Christ with the physical body lying asleep until the coming harvest of resurrection. And as John Piper says, and I agree with him, People say, well, what about cremation? What about people who've been blown apart on battlefields or lost at sea and eaten by fish? And Piper says, God can put a person back together (laughs) no matter what has happened. There's a coming harvest of resurrection. And, And so the question is, how does the fact that Jesus broke through the cosmic Fort Knox door, how does that change your week this week? How does it change your conversation in the parking lot after this service? What difference will the resurrection make for you today? Will it make for you this week? Perhaps the fact of the resurrection will cause joy and hope to exude from you, to ooze from you as you find yourself ministering to a hurting friend. Perhaps a fresh consideration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ will bring a new, deep peace to you in your own circumstances. The older we get, the more we think about our mortality. Maybe just considering, praying, the resurrection of Christ is going to bring a fresh peace to you, a deep peace. Maybe the truth that Christ is risen will give you a fresh vigor in your business or in your studies. Or maybe you'll spend time this week just getting super excited, like I was, super excited about the first thousand centuries that you will spend in the new creation with your own risen, glorified, physical body, all courtesy of the crucifixion and resurrection of your King, Jesus Christ. Friends, the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. Let's pray. Lord, the apostles came on fire with boldness, announcing and declaring 
Christ is risen from the dead. And they did that despite the physical violence that came against them, the threats of violence, the actual beatings. They did it anyway. Because it's the most important thing ever declared. It's the best news ever declared. Lord, I pray that the news of the resurrection would seep into our souls so that this week we would be different in our walk with you, in our discipling people, uh, in our day-to-day. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all you have done. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.